Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners, and thanks for stopping by. I appreciate you being regular listeners of the Paranormal Factor podcast, and if you're here for the first time, I think you'll enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll go out and give some of our previous episodes a listen. Also, let me make a pitch here for our Facebook page. We have new content every weekday, Monday through Fridays. Mondays are Monster Monday, where we highlight a monster for you, many you may never have heard of before. Tuesdays, we pose a paranormal-themed question to you, with the answer given on our next episode broadcast. Wednesdays, we highlight a paranormal film or book for your enjoyment, and Thursday, we share some recent paranormal news from out there in the world. And of course, Fridays are when our episodes premiere each week. So please go out to the Facebook page and search for the Paranormal Factor podcast and start enjoying some fun content today. Before we get into this episode, let me just say this is kind of a weird one, listeners. We're going to be talking about an alien, alien robot. We're not really sure, but I will tell you one thing. I have not run across any other cases where a similar creature has been reported, and that makes this one kind of interesting. So, on with our encounter with the Flatwoods Monster. It was nearly 70 years ago when seven witnesses and a dog came across a horrifying 10-foot-tall creature known as the Flatwoods Monster in Braxton County, West Virginia. It was dusk when they saw it. The May brothers, Ed, 13, and Freddie, 12, had been playing in their schoolyard with their 10-year-old friend, Tommy Heyer. The three noticed a pulsating red light streak across the sky and crash on a nearby farm. They ran to grab the maze boy's mother. Then they gathered more people for a search and ventured into the woods. They would soon wish they hadn't. They went up a hill to check out where the light had landed. A few other boys, one with a dog, showed up too. As soon as the search party traveled deeper into the woods, a noxious smell made them sick. A shrieking figure with glowing orange eyes and a spade-shaped head approached the group, its feet never touching the ground. The group of family and friends didn't wait a second for the alien creature to come closer and ran for their lives running back down the hill in sheer and incredible terror. The Flatwoods monster is often overshadowed by its more famous cousin in nearby Mason County, the Mothman. Yet, the Flatwoods monster has its own devoted fans who celebrate the story and the reported sightings of the creature. The Flatwood monsters in West Virginia folklore is an entity reported to have been sighted in the town of Flatwoods in Braxton County, West Virginia, United States, on September the 12th of 1952, after a bright object crossed the night sky. Over 50 years later, many investigators have concluded the light was just a meteor, and the creature just a barn owl perched in a tree, with shadows making it appear to be a large humanoid. Well, maybe. We'll see about that. There are also different names associated with the monster, and it became a local legend. 
a southern eerie story that defined the tiny village of less than 300 people for more than six decades. We know for sure that a little after 7 p.m. on September 12, 1952, three boys were playing football on the school playground in the small West Virginia town of Flatwoods when they saw, well, something flash across the sky and land on the property of a nearby farmer. Sounds like the beginning of any number of alien invasion stories, doesn't it? And it, it is, in a way. The story of what the boys and Mrs. May saw that night would go down in history and put the tiny town on the UFO alien encounters map to this very day. What exactly the boys saw is up for some debate. Even among paranormal experts, it goes by many names, including the Braxton County Monster and the Phantom of Flatwoods. In its home county of Braxton, it's sometimes known by an affectionate nickname, Braxy, but it is most commonly called the Flatwoods Monster. Two of the boys on that football field were brothers, the children of Kathleen May, and before long they had recruited their mom and several other kids to undertake an expedition to go and find the unidentified flying, or maybe in this case falling, object. Six children in all, ranging in ages from 10 to 17, and a dog accompanying Mrs. May out to find the creature that would go down in history as the Flatwoods Monster. The particulars of this case are pretty straightforward and without much doubt or alternative versions. What took place and the timeline of events is well known. What was actually seen and experienced is less so. Here's how the story unfolded that September evening in 1952 Flatwoods, West Virginia. The legend of the Braxton County or Flatwoods monster began near dusk on September the 12th, 1952 and it was about 7.15 p.m. when a group of three boys were startled from a game of football by a fireball streaking across the sky. These three boys, brothers Edward and Fred May, and their friend Tommy Heyer, said they saw a bright object cross the sky, and it landed on the property of local farmer G. Bailey Fisher. The boys went to the home of Kathleen May, a local beautician and mother of Edward and Fred, where they told their story. Kathleen, accompanied by the three boys, local children Neil Nunley and Ronnie Shaver, 17-year-old West Virginia National Guardsman Eugene Lemon, and the family dog Richie, went to the Fisher Farm in an effort to locate whatever it was the boys said they had seen. The dog ran ahead out of sight and started barking, and moments later ran back to the group with its tail between its legs. After traveling about a quarter of a mile, the group of seven reached the top of the hill where they reportedly saw a large pulsating ball of fire about 50 feet away. Beyond the hill, they reported seeing a pulsating light. They also saw and smelled a mist that made their eyes and noses burn. Then suddenly, to their left, two powerful light beams pierced the darkness. Turning a flashlight in that direction, they saw a large, man-like creature nearly 12 feet tall and about 4 feet wide. The oldest boy, 17-year-old Eugene, or Gene, Lemon, the member of the West Virginia National Guard, later told investigators and ufologists that he shined his flashlight in the direction of the glow, which is how the group saw the monster. The creature reportedly emitted a shrill hissing sound. It then began floating towards them, making no sound at all. It appeared to be some sort of robotic suit or spacecraft rather than an actual organic being. The creature had a red face and bright green clothing, which hung in folds below the waist. 
Its head was shaped like the ace of spades, and there was an almost sickening metallic odor emanating from its body. Set in the head were two eyes, described as portholes, glowing green-orange and the size of half-dollars. The body was a metallic armored structure lined with thick vertical pipes. Discrepancies exist in the actual color of the armor, some claiming it to be black while others saying green. The existence of arms is a similar matter. Most state the monster was armless, while others claim it possessed small, toy-like arms. As it glided towards them, it abruptly changed direction and headed off toward the red light. At this point, the group fled in panic. Upon returning home, the mother, Mrs. May, contacted the local sheriff and the county newspaper. As you can guess, news travels very fast in a small town, so it was only around half an hour after the incident that A. Lee Stewart, Jr., co-editor of the local newspaper, the Braxton Democrat, arrived. He attempted to interview the witnesses, but found most of them far too terrified to tell the story coherently. He talked Lemon into taking him to the site, but whatever had been there was gone. There was neither frightening creature nor strange light. The mist had dissipated, but Stewart knew that some gases settled quickly. He bent down to smell at ground level and found the grass smelled much like the gas that had been described, acrid and irritating. He later reported that there was a sickening, burnt, metallic odor still prevailing. Shortly afterward, the sheriff and a deputy came from investigating a report of a downed aircraft, which was probably actually the same fiery shape in the sky which the boys had spotted and not a plane at all, and investigated the scene, but they found nothing, no flying saucer, and no monster. Early the next morning, Stewart visited the site of the encounter for a second time and discovered a lingering odor and two large skid marks spaced about 10 feet apart. These marks stretched from where the monster had been standing to where the strange globe of light had been resting. Where the globe had been, a large area of grass had been flattened, and there were traces of a thick black liquid. He immediately reported them as being possible signs of a saucer landing based on the premise that the area had not been subjected to traffic for at least a year. It was later revealed that the tracks were likely to have been those of a Chevy pickup truck driven by a local who had gone to the site to look for the creature some hours prior to Stewart's discovery. After the event, investigators associated with civilian saucer investigation obtained a number of accounts from witnesses who claimed to have, have experienced a similar or related phenomena. These accounts included the story of a mother and her 21-year-old daughter who claimed to have encountered a creature with the same appearance and odor a week prior to the September 12th incident. The encounter reportedly affected the daughter so badly that she was confined to a hospital for three weeks. They also gathered a statement from the mother of the local farmer in which she said that at the approximate time of the crash, her house had been violently shaken and her radio had cut out for 45 minutes. And there was a report from the director of the local board of education who claimed to have seen a flying saucer taking off at 6.30 on the morning of September the 13th this is the morning after the creature was sighted. Andrew Smith, executive director of the Braxton County Visitor Center and founder of Flatwoods Monster Museum, related more of the actual alien sighting in the incident. They see movement from their left coming from the woods, Andrew said. They shined a flashlight and saw a 12-foot-tall monster hovering above the ground, spewing smoke and gas. Its head was red and spade-shaped, 
with a distinct point at the top. It had glowing eyes with spindly arms and claws, and its body was covered in what looked to be green armor. Some later would speculate that the color of the grass and the ship were reflecting off a metal suit that the alien was wearing. Even though it was floating quietly, it was emitting a shrieking sound, Andrews said. An illustrator was hired to interpret what the mom and children described they saw. However, descriptions of the monster vary, depending upon which of the seven who saw it, you ask, or who is doing the retelling of their accounts. But in general, the Flatwoods monster was described as being taller than a man with a round red face and dark green body. Kathleen May described the creature as having small, claw-like hands that extended in front of it, a lower body with what looked like pleated folds or drapes of fabric, and a sort of hood around its face that resembled the ace of spades. All of these elements would later become fairly standard in depictions of the Flatwoods monster. The somewhat jumbled nature of the witnesses' descriptions of the creature can perhaps be forgiven since, as soon as they turned the flashlight on it, the monster made a sound that was something between a hiss and a high-pitched squeal and glided toward the horrified group. Terrified, Lemon dropped the flashlight, and all of them ran. A local newspaper reported afterward, seven Braxton County residents on Saturday reported seeing a 10-foot Frankenstein-like monster in the hills above Flatwoods. National Guard member Gene Lemon was leading the group when he saw what appeared to be a pair of bright eyes in a tree. According to former news editor Holt Byrne, Newspaper stories were carried throughout the country. Radio broadcasts were carried on large networks and hundreds of phone calls were received from all parts of the country. The National Press Services rated the story number 11 for the year. A minister from Brooklyn came to question the May family. A Pittsburgh paper sent a special reporter. And UFO and Fortean writers like Gray Barker and Ivan T. Sanderson arrived to investigate. Some of the members of the group suffered from throat irritation, vomiting, and nausea, which persisted for days. These symptoms were passed off as side effects of hysteria, but it is worth noting that these are all telltale signs of exposure to toxic gas. On September 19, 1952, Kathleen May and Stewart flew to New York to film an interview for the CBS television show, We the People. On the show, an artist drew a sketch based on May's description, but did take some dramatic license. The resulting sketch was so outrageous that it caused many to immediately denounce the whole thing as a hoax. Despite the monster-like illustrations at the time, at least one eyewitness said it appeared to be mechanical in nature, a structured machine of some type, rather than a flesh-and-blood creature. One common thread that seems to go through the whole story is that it definitely seemed extraterrestrial in nature says Braxton County Convention and Visitors Bureau Executive Director Andrew Smith. In a subsequent interview after she returned from New York, Mrs. May claimed that she went back to the hilltop the next day and had discovered a strange grease-like substance. She accidentally got some of it on her clothing and found that no matter what she tried, it would not wash out. She also claimed that government officials had warned her not to give out information to anybody. When they saw the monster or alien, Mrs. May and the children all ran off to their home, and they reported it to the authorities. Apparently, the U.S. government sent some men, men in black, to their house who investigated the sighting and took down their witness reports, which apparently were all the same. They took the oil-stained dress. They said that they would return it, but they never did, said Jason Burns, a writer who specializes in West Virginia paranormal stories. 
Conspiracy theories on what the monster was began to pop up as the story gained traction. They tied it to a lot of other stories around the country about the same time, Burns said. This was the age of the space race, so there was a lot of interest in interstellar crafts. This was the time of Roswell, which was just five years previous, and this was the time of Sputnik and things like it that were just getting ready to take off, so it was very much in the forefront of people's minds, Burns noted. Some people were thinking maybe it was just mass hysteria, maybe it was fake, maybe it was just made up, but I actually met the maze at one point years ago, a long time ago in Flatwoods at an event, and they are very adamant that they saw what they saw, he said. And I believe they believe, you know, I I believe what they say they saw. Now, what it was, I don't know. Even the witnesses themselves weren't sure what they had encountered. But they did know what they had encountered was not ordinary and seemed to be not of this planet. And there also seemed to be no doubt that the seven witnesses had experienced something truly frightening. No doubt at all that they had all been terrified by the horrific incident they had experienced. Those people were the most scared people I've ever seen, said local newspaper editor A. Lee Stewart in that 1952 news story. Stewart himself had marched up that hill with a shotgun after witnesses told what they had seen. People don't make up that kind of story that quickly, Stewart said back then. Gene Lemon screamed and fell backward, the news account said, when he saw a ten-foot monster with a blood-red face and a green body that seemed to glow. And it may have had claws for hands. It was hard to tell because of the dense mist. One of the boys actually peed his pants, said John Gibson, a high school freshman at the time who knew them all. Their dog, Richie, ran with his tail between his legs. Gibson grew up in the Sutton Flatwoods area and was good friends with Neil Nunley, who was among the group who saw the monster. Gibson described Nunley, who is deceased, as a popular student at the local high school where they were both freshmen in 1952. He believes Nunley and the others did see something extraordinary. Gibson said that in stark contrast to Nunley's usual talkative self, he would clam up and get serious whenever any of his classmates tried to ask him questions about what he saw on the ridgetop. If you asked him about it, he would just turn around and walk away, Gibson said. UFO author Gray Barker was quick to arrive on the scene and a week after the event began interviewing witnesses. Barker found that Neil Nunley's account was the most dispassionate and considered it to be the most reliable. It was Nunley's version of events that Barker published in an article for Fate magazine and later, in his 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. According to Nunley, he and Gene Lemon were at the head of the group that headed up the hill to where the light seemed to have landed. Approaching the site, they came across a strange mist that smelled faintly of gas or burning metal. When they crested the hill, the first thing they saw was a huge globular mass just down the other side of the hill, about 50 feet away from them. Nunley described it as being like a ball of fire and said that its light pulsed at regular intervals. Although Nunley said that he didn't hear anything, the other witnesses claimed that there was a low beating or thumping sound. They said there was a sort of hissing sound as well, similar to a jet plane. It was at this point that Lemon, thinking that he saw animal eyes in a tree, swung his flashlight around and illuminated the creature. Nunley described it as being a somewhat humanoid-shaped figure around 15 feet tall with a round, blood-red face. They saw no nose 
or mouth, only eyes or eye-like openings. Some claimed that greenish-orange light beamed out from them. They only saw the upper half of its body, from head to waist. One of the children later drew a picture where the figure was outlined in fire. Mrs. May claimed that it appeared to have some sort of internal light source. She also said that there were cloth-like folds on the body, and it had clawed hands. No one seemed to be certain if the creature actually stood on the ground or if it was floating. They only got to look at the creature for a brief moment before it moved toward them, making a hissing noise. While some of the witnesses described the thing's movement as bobbing up and down as if jumping at them, Nunley was adamant that this was not so. He said that it moved in an arc, moving toward them but circling at the same time. It just moved. It didn't walk. It moved evenly. It didn't jump. The group fled in terror, no doubt regretting their curiosity. Apparently, even the dog had been scared silly as it was later found cowering and whining under a porch. It was reported that the boys suffered from irritated noses and throats immediately following the incident and suffered from nausea and convulsions for weeks after. These symptoms have been attributed to exposure to the mysterious gas. The encounter not only made the local and national news scaring a wider multitude of people, it also prompted a U.S. Air Force inquiry, part of the UFO investigative effort called Project Blue Book, that was dispatching investigators around the country to look into such claims. But before they could take on the incident, all of a sudden, more reports would come in of possibly the same or similar extraterrestrial beings being spotted in the general region that would seem to lend credibility to the Flatwoods story. Another sighting of a creature similar in description to the Flatwoods monster was reported by Mrs. Audra Harper not long before the infamous sighting on Fisher's farm. Harper claimed to have seen the monster while walking through the woods near her home near the town of Heaters. Heaters is about five miles north of Flatwoods. Harper and her friend were walking to a nearby store. The road leading out of their property was rutted, so they were taking a shortcut through the forest instead of walking the road, which would have increased their trip significantly. About a half mile into their trip, they noticed a ball of fire on one of the hills they were passing. Harper dismissed it, assuming that one of her neighbors was fox chasing. When she glanced back, she saw something unbelievable. The fire had vanished, and in its place stood a tall, dark silhouette of a man-shaped figure. Terrified, Harper and her friend ran, escaping among the rocks and boulders strewn around the hillside. The day after the September 12th incident in Flatwoods, another strange sighting occurred near Strange Creek, about 20 miles south of Flatwoods. Reportedly, George and Edith Snitowski and their 18-month-old son were driving through the rural area between Clay and Braxton County on Route 4, not far from Frametown and about 19 miles southwest of Flatwoods, when their car suddenly died. Mr. Snetowski attempted to restart the car to no avail. It was nighttime and the road was deserted. While they were trying to decide what to do, a foul, sulfurous smell filled the air and their baby began to cry. A strange bright light filled the darkness and the couple witnessed a 10-foot tall creature hovering in front of their car. The description was similar to that of the original sighting, except the monster was not wearing what is presumed to be its spade-shaped hood. Instead, its head was reportedly reptilian and bony. 
the creature dragged its lizard-like hand across the hood of the car before drifting away into the woods. As soon as the monster was out of sight, the car restarted and the couple sped away. Snetowski would later give his account to Mail Magazine in 1955. This creature, thought to be the same creature sighted in Flatwoods, is known as the Frametown Monster. And just like that, the Flatwood Monster, alien, robot, or whatever it was, disappeared. It has never reappeared, and it has never ever been reported over the years in any location. But these stories have become an eerie folktale, creating a fascinating culture in the small towns around the county. Although the monster has not been seen since the original incidences in 1952, its impact on the rural community has been huge. Locals say sometimes, if you stand outside at night there, you can almost feel it. Like the monster left a gift from the stars for us, and we just haven't quite found it yet, notes a local resident. But rattled eyewitnesses weren't the only reason this story took off. Americans were truly frightened in 1952, made anxious by atomic bombs and what seemed like a new world made by mad scientists. Even Life magazine, probably the most popular publication in the nation at the time, had, just a few months earlier, published a seemingly credible fad story about flying saucers. The Air Force had just started Project Blue Book earlier that same year. UFO stories were on the rise, including sensational stories like the Roswell crash five years previously and the so-called UFO invasion of Washington just months before. These kinds of frightening stories grow best when they are formulated in an air of anxiety, such as 1952 Cold War America, where there was plenty of anxiety to go around. The Flatwoods monster story hit just three years after the Soviet Union successfully tested an atomic bomb in 1949. The Air Force was scanning for bombers over our northern skies. Still, others doubted. State police laughed off the reports as hysteria, a local newspaper story said at the time. They said the so-called monster had grown from 7 to 17 feet in just 24 hours. Since this is such a terrifically weird story, it should come as no surprise that there were and are skeptics of what Mrs. May and the children say they saw. The skeptics do not really suggest the witnesses were lying, just that they misinterpreted and misidentified ordinary phenomenon. So, let's hear what those skeptics have to say. The story made the local news, then got picked up by national radio and big papers all over the country, said Andrew Smith, who runs the Flatwoods Monster Museum and the Braxton County Convention Visitors Bureau. Mrs. May and the National Guard kid ended up going to New York to talk to CBS, Gibson said. The appearance and a highly fantasized and embellished drawing by the show's sketch artist began to cast doubt almost immediately upon the two adult witnesses, Mrs. May and Eugene Lemon. Soon the event was being characterized as a hoax. After investigating the case in 2000, Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry concluded that the bright light in the sky reported by the witnesses on September the 12th was most likely a meteor, that the pulsating red light was likely an aircraft navigation or hazard beacon, and that the creature described by witnesses closely resembled an owl. While never outright accusing the witnesses of perpetrating a hoax, Nichols suggested that witnesses' perceptions were distorted by their heightened state of anxiety. 
Nichols' conclusions are shared by a number of other investigators, including those of the Air Force. The night of the September 12th sighting, a meteor had been observed across three states, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. According to Nickel, three flashing red aircraft beacons were also visible from the area of the sightings, which could account for descriptions of a pulsating red light and red tint on the face of the alleged monster. Nickel concluded that the shape, movement, and sounds reported by witnesses were also consistent with the silhouette, flight pattern, and call of a startled barn owl perched on a tree limb. Researchers presume foliage beneath the owl may have created the illusion of the lower portions of the creature, described as being a pleated green skirt. Researchers also decided that the witness's inability to agree on whether the creature had arms, combined with Mrs. May's report of it having small claw-like hands, which extended in front of it, also matched the description of a barn owl with its talons gripping a tree branch. The morning following the event, the editor of the Braxton Democrat visited the site where he discovered skid marks and an odd gummy deposit in the field. In the years since, true believers have tried to tout these findings as proof of a UFO landing. According to skeptic Ryan Haupt, even though local boy Max Lockard admitted he had driven around the site hoping to see something in his Chevy truck, Paranormal investigators concluded that the tracks, oily residue, and bits of a rubbery substance must have been left by the creature and not the truck. This was further documented by Joe Nickel when he interviewed locals as part of an investigation of the Flatwoods monster in 2000. He was told that the landing evidence was actually left by a 1942 Chevy pickup truck belonging to Max Lockard, who had driven out to investigate the spot during the night. Haupt also explains nausea reported by some of the witnesses as symptoms consistent with hysteria and overexertion. Although that seems a reach since these symptoms were experienced for days after the event occurred. The U.S. Air Force were doubters too. They had done UFO research and investigations since 1947, collecting thousands of stories and investigating some. About this one, they concluded that bright but common meteors had streaked across the eastern U.S. at dusk that night, seen by many in Baltimore, among other places. Military officials stated that the meteor shower that night may have cast a red light on the scene, which witnesses claimed was pulsating from the creature himself. Curiously, while a bright meteor had been seen in multiple states as it shot across the sky, there was no meteor shower reported for that night. And the monster with the claw-like arms? The Air Force agreed with Nichols' later conclusion. It was likely an owl, they said. Could the Flatwoods monster have been something as simple as an owl in a tree? How do we explain such a misidentification by rural people who have lived around such local wildlife their entire lives? It does stretch credibility that they would mistake a common owl for a ten-foot alien being. For some, Nichols' explanation more than fits the bill. Others prefer to continue to believe in the existence of the Flatwoods monster. Regardless of whether the Flatwoods monster was real or just a figment born of panic and excitement, the effect of the monster's sighting on the local community is very real indeed. Resident and former school teacher John Gibson doubts too, though he's since sold 1,000 of his 12-inch tall ceramic green monster figurines in just the last two years, at a hefty $30 apiece. I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, 
says Gibson, an insurance agent when he was still 81. I don't believe in Santa, and I don't believe in the Flatwoods Monster, but I do want to boost our community. One writer who stoked the story a lot was Gray Barker, a Braxton County native who investigated the monster and then became one of the more prominent UFO mythmakers ever. It was Barker who wrote about Flatwoods, then introduced the mythology of government men in black after he heard that two Air Force investigators had reportedly shown up in Flatwoods posing as magazine writers. But Barker's friends later said he didn't believe and did the UFO writings cheerfully and for money. To this day, locals still wonder. The universe is a mighty big place, says Joan Baez, news editor at the Braxton Democrat, the local newspaper. I cannot imagine we might be alone in it, though I'm a Baptist, so maybe I shouldn't say that. There were fewer than 300 people in Flatwoods in 1952, and a few less than that now. Officials in Flatwood erected a welcome sign which designated the town as home of the Green Monster. The town also commemorates the legend in its annual Flatwoods Days Festival. Located in the town of Sutton, the Braxton County seat is the Flatwoods Monster Museum, which is dedicated to the legend. The Braxton County Convention and Visitors Bureau also built a series of five tall chairs in the shape of the monster to serve as landmarks and visitor attractions. The Bureau rewards visitors who photograph all five chairs with free Braxy stickers. The legend of the Flatwoods Monster appears to have also inspired media beyond West Virginia. The video games Fallout 76 and Everybody's Golf 4 each contain references to the legend. In television, the second episode of the 2019 History Channel series Project Blue Book titled The Flatwoods Monster is based on the Flatwoods incident. And so the Flatwoods Monster, also known as the Green Monster, also known as the Phantom of Flatwoods, who was reportedly 7 feet tall or 10 feet tall or 13 feet tall or 17 feet tall became that most peculiar American invention, a legend emblazoned on t-shirts. Although the Flatwoods monster itself may be long gone, it doesn't seem like it has been forgotten in the least. How do these stories gain credence? It's not necessarily that millions believe in UFOs, says behavioral psychologist Clay Rutledge. Many UFO devotees usually don't believe, he says, but they are seduced by the story. Why? Well, there's the hope that we're not just insignificant organisms walking around aimlessly on a rock floating in space, says Rutledge, who has studied UFO beliefs and culture. There's the hope that, well, we're part of something bigger. Call it cosmic loneliness, he says. Maybe. But Kathleen May who passed away in 2009, never retracted or altered her account of events. And her sons, brothers, Freddie and Ed, always stood by their story too. But they long stopped talking to reporters. They got tired after about 100,000 interviews, a local says. The brothers did appear in a documentary about the Flatwoods Phantom. And in the video trailer teasing to that show, Freddie looks calmly into the camera. As far as for myself, he says, it doesn't matter to me whether people believe or don't believe. People grin about it now and take monster souvenir money from hundreds of monster tourists every week. 
the Flatwoods Monster has not hissed at boys in the little village of West Virginia since that day of September the 12th, 1952. But it scared people plenty back then, including the eyewitnesses. A mom, six boys aged 10 to 17, and a dog. In our next episode of the Paranormal Factor podcast, Friday, the 13th episode of this second season, by the way, we investigate arguably the most haunted house in America, the Whaley House. The Whaley House was the home of Thomas Whaley and his family. At various times, it also housed Whaley's general store, San Diego's second county courthouse, and the first commercial theater in San Diego. The house has allegedly witnessed more history than any other building in the city. But I'm sure you don't care as much about that as you do about the good stuff. The tales of hauntings and ghostly encounters in this house. This is a paranormal podcast, after all. The house has frequently been cited as haunted based on strange encounters and frightening sights reported by visitors. In 2005, Life magazine called the Whaley House the most haunted house in America. We'll give you the background on the house, who some of the better-known ghostly spirits might be, and stories of actual encounters. Join us as we explore the leading haunted house in America, the Whaley House, next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. It is time for the quiz. So, here we go. La Llorona is said to weep for who? Is it A, her children, B, your children, C, her husband, or D, Argentina? Once again, La Llorona is said to weep for who? Her children, your children, her husband, or Argentina? I'm sure you got that last bit, D, Argentina. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Okay. And the answer is... A. Her children. La Llorona is the apparition known as the Weeping Woman. She's a legend staple in North and South America. The legend and folklore that is La Llorona has been around for a long time. We're not entirely sure what La Llorona is on a basic level. She may be a ghost or possibly a dark entity fully capable of taking physical form. She could even be demonic. Mother, murderer, and ultimately monster, the tale of La Llorona has surfaced many times throughout history, ranging from the mysterious jungles of South America to the harsh deserts of northern Mexico, eventually making its way to the American Southwest, where a newfound fascination with the legend has taken root thanks to the integration of Mexican-American culture along the borderlands. In Latin America and Spanish-speaking communities in the U.S., and especially in Mexico, no ghost story is told as often, discussed as enthusiastically, or interpreted as widely as the legend of La Llorona. La Llorona has even been reported as far north as Montana on the banks of the Yellowstone River. La Llorona literally means the weeping woman, so it's not surprising that the main characteristic shared by all stories of La Llorona is that she weeps. Other than that one defining trait, the specter known as La Llorona varies widely. Many stories are told of what she looks like and what she does, and even more are told of how she came to be such a mournful spirit. A varied selection of La Llorona stories can be found in news accounts and across the internet. 
you can also find many collected in books. Looking through such stories, you'll find many variations. Sometimes La Llorona sees you from afar and pursues you, terrifying you as you flee toward your home. Sometimes she appears riding a horse, or she appears in your horse-drawn wagon or in your car, warning you against bad behavior before disappearing, just like that other famous ghost, the vanishing hitchhiker. And in some stories, an encounter with her is fatal. For more on La Llorona, give a listen to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Paranormal Factor Podcast. It's our third most popular episode. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.